Well, Father, we come before you just grateful to be here on this cold winter morning, to be gathered with the saints and to hear your word. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Luke. We thank you that he recorded these stories and these anecdotes and this teaching for our edification and that 2,000 years later, it's as real and as relevant to us as it was back then. I pray that this will be a comfort to many people as we do live in a tragic world where evil does happen, that you will help us to know how to process that and how to take them to you, take our doubts and our concerns to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in his uh, book, Disappointment with God, author Philip Yancey shares the story of a woman who was at the bedside of, his, of her 20-something-year-old daughter who was dying of cystic fibrosis. And the mother recounts this. I was sitting beside her bed a few days before her death, when suddenly she began screaming. I will never forget those shrill, piercing, primal screams. Yancey comments, it's against this background of human beings falling apart that God could have helped. Look down on a young woman devoted to him quite willing to die for him, to give him glory, and decided to sit on his hands and let her death top the horror charts for cystic fibrosis deaths. It's an honest question, right? How, how could a good God, what we know about God, who is sovereign, allow something like this to happen? And there is something about suffering that can give people Second thoughts about God. And this is something that is common to man and common to the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, that is, and that would be John the Baptist. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, 18 through 23. In the context, Jesus just healed the widow's son, raised him from the dead, right? Quite a healing. News of that healing spread throughout Judea down to Fortress Macarius, where John the Baptist was imprisoned, and we read this account. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, here is the question of a suffering saint. Is Jesus, are you really the Christ, or should I look to someone else? 
he's having second thoughts about Jesus while he is in prison. There is a sense where the greatest man who ever lived was doubting. Now, doubt is probably the scariest word for any Christian, isn't it? Right? Because doubt is the opposite of faith. And you're saved by faith. And when people fall away, they lose their faith. And if you just follow some of the cultural narrative these days, there have been very famous Christians who have lost their faith. Uh, one who was quite influential in my life was Joshua Harris, who does not believe the gospel anymore. And so whenever there's these seed forms of faith, it, it can be very scary to the person who's experiencing it, isn't it? It can be very scary. It can be scary if somebody who you really look up to says, you know, I'm struggling with doubt. The, the impulse that you would have is, no, surely not. And so what happens is a lot of people become very isolated in their doubts. And yet, when they sing the immortal hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, they hear the lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and they think, well, he might have experienced that, I'm experiencing that, but nobody else. Nobody else is. But the temptation to doubt is not the same thing as sin. What you see with John the Baptist is what you do with the de your doubt is what matters, and in the case of John the Baptist, he does two things. Number one, he takes his doubt to Jesus. And two, he accepts the answer. And I don't know where you guys are. We might have some people in the congregation because of a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe they're doubting the existence of God. They have been challenged. You have been challenged to think fresh thoughts about evolution Perhaps you've read some books that are very critical of the Bible, and you're not sure if it's true. Some of you might be going through some heart-wrenching trial where you wonder, is God really good? You might have some probing questions about how does God allow evil to exist, or why does God say certain things are sinful, and can a good God really do that? You're struggling with doubt. And my hope for you today is to help you know what to do with your doubts. The first thing you need to do is you need to take your doubt to Jesus. Let's look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent, to them, uh, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And the men had come to him, and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Now, now previously, Jesus is hearing all these miracles. I'm sorry, John, he does these miracles, and then John hears about it while he's in Machaerus' prison. Now, John and Jesus have an interesting relationship. It's very obvious in the beginning of the book of Luke. John the Baptist was the opening act for Jesus. Both John and Jesus had their births announced through a miracle, through the angel Gabriel announcing it to the relevant parents. But then you kind of see a, a difference where there's John and then Jesus goes one better. So John was conceived when God opened up the 
the womb of a barren woman. But then God does one better with Jesus where he opens up the womb of a virgin. John uh, the Baptist, when he was born, his father, who was muted because of his unbelief, is miraculously able to speak again. But then when Jesus is born, God does one better by having an angelic chorus sing his praises at his birth. And the idea is that John the Baptist is to give way to Jesus. His whole purpose is to point to the coming one. When John the Baptist starts his ministry, he is a, a superstar. People go out to the wilderness to, to hear this prophet, and they begin to have some speculations about him. In Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts, concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, Christ means anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. There was a belief that when the Messiah comes, he's going to liberate us from our enemies. For a long time, it was believed that God put the Jews in the promised land so they can worship Yahweh according to their own convictions, but they can't do that while these Gentile scum are occupying them. But when the Messiah comes... Just like when Moses came, he's going to liberate us. And they're wondering, is John the one who is to come? And John makes it clear. He's going to give way to someone better. Luke 3, 16 through 17, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, that he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, I baptize you he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John baptizes with water. It was a symbol that they're parting from their former life, that they need a, a cleansing of their sin. But one is coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There will be an internal transformation. This uh, portends to the Pentecost. You'll give way to a better baptism. And yet, John continues to preach the message of repentance to prepare the way, help people to understand that they need to get unsaved before they get saved. And then as we move on in verse 17, he says about this baptizer, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When this better baptizer comes... When the Messiah comes, he's going to kick some cosmic tail. That's what he's saying. That's his ministry. I'm not the one, but there is one who's going to come, and those enemies of Israel are going to get it. And then in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, Herod was pretty much the governor of that region. And even though he professed to be somewhat of a Jew, he was not a moral man. On a trip to Rome, you can't make this stuff up, he seduces his brother's wife, marries her. Now, Count the violations there, right? Adultery, 
incest, and this guy is ruling Israel. John speaks the truth to power. Herod decides to shut him up. And what do kings do when they want to shut somebody up? You put him in prison. And so here he is in Fortress Machiris in an ancient Near Eastern prison, which is not the Hilton. And while there, he's hearing the news about this Jesus. And even though he's hearing about the miracles, he's still asking the question, are you the one who is to come? Now that's a reference to Isaiah 59.20. The prophecy is, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. He's waiting for a redeemer, right? He's waiting for a, the Messiah to come. Now, what's really interesting about this is previously, John the Baptist looks at Jesus in John, the Gospel of John, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he elaborates on it. In John 1, 33-34, he says this to his disciples, I myself did not know him, not in that form. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He was there at the baptism of Jesus. He saw the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on this man. And, and God said, this is the one to come. But now he's asking the question, are you the one who is to come or should I look for another? Now this has confounded some interpreters where they can't imagine that a man of such conviction as John the Baptist would have these kinds of doubts. So they, they speculate, well, maybe what John was doing was he sent two of his disciples so that their faith would be confirmed. This was an errand for them. But remember what Jesus says to them at the end? He doesn't say, I'm showing you these signs. He says, you go tell John. Jesus knew that this was for John's sake that they were asking. Here is a man who's having second thoughts about Jesus. He's not doubting the reality of God. He's not questioning whether or not there really is a Messiah. He's questioning whether or not Jesus, who he pointed to, is still the Messiah. So what happened? What happened to cause these second thoughts? And I, I don't know his heart. But from what I can see, there's probably two realities going on here. Number one, he's suffering. He's suffering. He's in prison and he's suffering. And if you have ever suffered for a long time, it is a soul-shaking, spirit-draining experience. You just live with constant pain. Suffering comes in many forms. Emotional suffering. Physical suffering. It's... Suffering, by its very definition, is not a good experience, right? It's hard to be optimistic in the midst of, of suffering. You lose hope in the midst of suffering. And when suffering comes, 
it, it often leads to a re-evaluation about whether or not the reason why you are suffering is worth it. Now, John the Baptist was suffering because he did what God wanted him to do. He was told, prepare the way for the Messiah. He was told to confront the nation of their sin. He did. And what does he get? Prison. He eventually loses his head. See, Jesus makes this connection between suffering and doubt in the parable of the soils. You guys remember the parable of the soils? The sower went out to sow, cast the seed on the road, the rocky soil, the weedy soil, and the good soil. And then he interprets this parable for us. And I want to draw your attention to his assessment of the rocky soil. Luke 8.13. And the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. They're fired up. Best news I've ever heard. Most zealous Christians in the church. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, time of trial, time of suffering, they fall away. When people suffer, it's easy to have second thoughts about God. Uh, and in our church, right, we know that prosperity theology is just way off. If you're following God so that he can provide a G5 for you, there's something off. But there is a sense that there's a special relationship that I'm promised. There's peace, security, tranquility of the soul. There's a sense that I'm on the right side of history. I am an adopted son or daughter of the Father. And when you suffer, it's easy to think, well, is this my reward for following you? I'm not asking for much. I'm just asking that this terrible curse is lifted from me or the person that I love. Is this what it means to, to follow you if the end is brokenness and suffering? which Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. But there is the promise that he who loses his life will save it, right? There is. Suffering is a bad thing. That is why Jesus will destroy all suffering for his people. There'll be no suffering in heaven. God actually agrees with that sentiment that suffering's bad. Did you know that? So that's one reason. I think the second reason is there is an unmet expectation, okay? When Jesus preaches his opening sermon, he quotes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. I want to focus on verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. Now, if you're John the Baptist and you know this is what the Messiah is supposed to do and you are in prison, 
wouldn't you think, okay, remember that part about the Messiah opening prison doors for his people? I'm in prison. I, I mean, right? There is a certain expectation. The Messiah is supposed to come back and create justice, vindicate his people. And here he is in prison while this adulterous, incestuous king has a buffet every night of the week. What gives? Right? The presence of injustice can trigger doubt. The unmet expectation. And, and is it right to expect those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you see injustice in life, it, it can cause you to, to have second thoughts. A young, loving Christian couple has been trying to have a child for years. But her cousin, who's been in and out of rehab for meth, seems to have a baby from a different father every year. She can't even raise them. DCF takes them all away. What gives? What gives? This pastor who's been faithful all his life gets diagnosed with stage four cancer, has four months to live, and this philandering church member, who has been a thorn in the side of everybody, yeah, he has perfect health. What gives? You see, sooner or, or later, it's easy to have these kinds of questions. And yet, after John asked this question, it's really fascinating to see Jesus' assessment of him. He, he doesn't say, all of us have our faults. John's having a bad day. Don't worry about it. He refers to him, according to Luke 7.28, in the same conversation. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Isn't that interesting? John's having second thoughts. He's having doubts. And Jesus' assessment of him has been undiminished. There are a lot of the heroes of the faith who do struggle with doubt. I, you look at Elijah, right? kind of the forerunner of John the Baptist. You know the story of Elijah? He was sent by God to tell the northern kingdom of Israel that you guys are apostatizing. God is going to basically create an iron dome in the sky so that you'll get no rain for three years. And then he has a duel. This is one of my children's favorite Bible stories where he and the prophets of Baal have a competition. They erect two altars, have two sacrifices, and they're going to see which God will answer them. And so the prophets of Baal, they slash themselves to do all this other stuff. And, and Elijah just trash talks the whole time, right? Maybe he's stuck in the bathroom. He literally says that, although they didn't have bathrooms. He had a different way of saying it. And then Elijah cuts up the sacrifices, digs a little moat around it. He drenches, all kind, drenches it with water. He prays to the Lord and like this beam, I would love to see this. And this was our favorite part to reenact when we did Bible stories, right? 
a beam of fire came down, incinerated it, and then the people said, the Lord, he is God, rose up and slaughtered the prophets of Baal. Revival is upon us. Not so fast. Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel resist. He flees into the wilderness. He's kind of licking his wounds. Wants to turn into his prophet badge. And says, I'm the only one left. No one believes. He was in the pit of despair, right? That can happen to the best of us. I know personally I've had... um, issues where I had to kind of wrestle with doubt and just the fact that bad things happen, evil things happen to to children of all people. And this is where we have to remember that there are different kinds of doubt and some are worse than others. Michael Patton, uh, he's a pretty well-known Christian thinker, has thought a lot about doubt and and he describes two kinds of doubt. The first kind of doubt is the category where the doubter becomes angry. They grew up in church, went to all the VBSs, went to Awana, memorized all the verses, and then for the first time in their life, they talk to somebody who actually believes in evolution. Or perhaps a good friend of theirs comes out of the closet and their their whole sexual ethic is really challenged. And they do their own investigation. They, they begin to uh, discover certain things about the manuscripts of the Bible. And they start to read all these authors. And, and they go on the self-proclaimed journey to find the truth. And as they do, they kind of take the me against the world, me against the church. And they, they leave and they depart. And they almost become an angry apostle of atheism. Okay, that's one kind of doubt. The other one is people who are scared of their doubts. They're really struggling with honest questions and situation, and, and it's kind of like they're, they're falling backwards trying to look for something to hold on to because they don't want to fall away. And so what do they do? Well, what they should do is you go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. I think about the, the father of a demon-possessed son who's told that this demon will only come out by, by prayer. And what does he say in Mark 9, 24? I believe, help my unbelief. John the Baptist had doubts, but what makes him the greatest among man and born among women? Greatest, well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Was he calls two of his disciples with his doubt, and he goes to Jesus. He goes to Jesus. That is what you do. You go to Jesus when you have your doubts. Does that make sense? Don't go to these books about the problems with the Bible. Don't follow an internet influencer who fell away. Don't keep it to yourself. Go to Jesus and go to his people. Then secondly, accept his answer. Accept his answer. Look at verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? So they faithfully convey the message that John gave to them. And then in the providence of God, we see this in verse 21. In that hour, 
He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So I imagine that the apostles of John, disciples of John, they, they walk up and they find a crowd. In that day and age, it was pretty easy to find Jesus. Look for the crowd of people, and he'll be in the middle of it. And so the crowd parts, they, they approach Jesus. Jesus makes eye contact, acknowledging that he knows they are sent from John. They ask him the question. He receives the answer. And then they look around and they notice that this is not a normal crowd. They, they notice from the aroma of decaying flesh that there's lepers in this crowd. There's people with gastrointestinal issues. They look around and see flushed faces of people with, with fevers. They see a young boy guiding his father who's obviously blind. They hear the otherworldly voices of demons in this crowd. And then Jesus gets to work. He touches the leper and his flesh is like baby skin. He touches the eyes of the blind man and he can see and he rejoices. He talks sternly to the demons and they are gone. And then you can almost just see him gesture, right? Did you see what just happened? Did you see what just happened? And that's when he quotes scriptures, various scriptures, with the following message. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, he doesn't just do all these signs as magic tricks. Each of these are prophesied in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. Isaiah 26.19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. The Messiah will raise people from the dead. Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the word of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain the fresh joy of the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Right? All of these miracles have been foretold by Isaiah. John, you know Isaiah. You know that Isaiah points to you as the one who's to prepare the way for the Messiah. That same book prophesies all these other things as well. So part of Jesus' answer is, is, John, you don't know the whole picture. You don't know the, the whole story. Yeah, there is that part about me coming in and kicking cosmic tail. That's going to happen. But then there's this other part of a healing ministry, a gentle ministry, a compassionate ministry, one that's meant to restore people from the curse of sin. 
That's what I'm doing right now. See, often when people ha- have their doubts, they're, they're focused on one issue at one time without seeing the bigger picture. Now, going back to Elijah, remember he's in the wilderness saying, I'm the only one left. This is all for naught. And what God does is he, he reminds him that he's actually raising up a king by the name of Hazael who is going to extract vengeance on the people who are doing this to him. And there's still 7,000 people, Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. All will be made right. So that's the first thing. He gives them the bitter, bigger picture of what's going on here by anchoring it to Scripture. But he also sends the disciples to give testimony of what they have seen and what they have heard. What he doesn't do is he doesn't conjure up a special sign for John. Right? Isn't that what a lot of people want? If God exists, can't you give me a sign? Woody Allen once said, if only God would give me a clear sign of his existence like making a large deposit in my name in a Swiss bank account. See, the problem is when you ask God to give you a sign, when you demand him to give you a sign, you're kind of reversing the authority role. You need to prove yourself to me. It's kind of like telling Joe Biden, I don't believe that you're president. I will not submit to you as president unless you prove that you are rightfully elected to me unless you prove that you are indeed the president, the burden is on you to do it, and I'll submit if I am satisfied with the answer to my objections. Does it work that way? It doesn't. Whether you believe in God or not is irrelevant. He's still real. He's still the authority. The issue is, are you willing to accept the sign that's been given to you? So Jesus did perform signs, He did it in the presence of John's disciples, who then went back to John in prison, and they told him what they saw. And when you just even read the Gospel of Luke, this is of particular relevance because Theophilus, right, the patron, he never saw Jesus. He never saw the signs. And yet Luke says, All this was written, according to Luke 1.4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I wrote all this stuff down for you so that you might believe. Jesus did the greatest sign by dying and rising three days later. And that's been conveyed to us by the testimony of faithful men who saw it and wrote it down so that we can benefit from it. God doesn't have to give you another sign. He gave you the greatest one, but will you accept the sign that's been given? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He not only does the miracle, quotes scripture, sends the miracle back to John. He actually says one more thing to John. And blessed is the one, knows the singular, who is not offended by me. Blessed are you, John, if you are not offended by me. Now, that word offended is, is literally scandalon, like scandalize. Uh, the idea is that there's a piece of information that is a real stumbling block that you just can't get over. Single ladies, you meet the man of your dreams. You go out on a few dates with him. He is kind. 
has a genuine Christian testimony, knows scripture, loves ministry. You're thinking, let's plan the wedding date. You're putting his last name with your first name, thinking that can work. And then you decide to Google his name, and you find out that he's on the sex offender registry. Could you get over that? Yeah, I'm saying, nah, that's, that's a deal breaker. Right? That's what it means. That's what scandalon means. There's a piece of information that you just can't get over. And with Jesus, there is a piece of information that a lot of people just couldn't get over. Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians when he says, 123, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. All right, it's so a stumbling block. People can't get over that. Number one, to be crucified is basically to be put on the sex offender registry. It's shameful. Anybody gets crucified, surely they deserved it. We know what kind of man he is. Secondly, the expectation of the Messiah was he would come and conquer Rome, not be defeated by Rome on the cross. That's an impossibility. I, I just can't get over that. And here, John the Baptist is expecting a triumphant Messiah who will open prison doors and rescue his people, of which he would be one. And Jesus says, don't be offended by me. Don't be embarrassed by me that I'm not that yet. You see, one, well, I, I, I will say this. The most dangerous position to be in when you doubt is to doubt and simultaneously be embarrassed by Jesus. I'll say that again. The most dangerous position you can be in when you doubt is to not only doubt, but to be embarrassed by Jesus. And let's face it. I mean, there are different ways where the world tries to embarrass us about our faith. When I was a young Christian, uh, the source of embarrassment is how can you be, uh, have a modicum of intelligence if you believe that the world was created in six days? How can you believe that there's only one way to the Father, that only one religion is, is correct? How can you believe in eternal conscious torment, that people go to hell for believing the wrong thing? Why is it that God would allow someone like Jeffrey Dahmer to go to heaven for believing at the end of his life or my grandmother who was a good person never believed and she goes to hell right that was the scandal right when I first became a Christian but it's interesting how those have kind of receded into the back we, we have new stumbling blocks so you're telling me that your Bible that upheld the institution of slavery and sanctioned genocide is ethical when it oppresses sexual minorities and promotes patriarchy? Right? There's new things to be embarrassed about. There, there is a, a stumbling block that is there. And the temptation, the temptation is to be embarrassed by it. To be embarrassed, to see it as a stumbling block. And Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
So in the midst of your doubt, you have to ask yourself this question, do you want it to be true? Because when people are embarrassed by something, if there's a way out, they'll take it because they don't want it to be true. Right? If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you don't want the Bible to be true. If you're thinking about leaving your spouse, you don't want the Bible to be true. Do you want the Bible to be true? And this is what Jesus tells some onlookers in John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my authority. So if you want to know if it's of God, if anyone's will is to do God's will from the posture of obedience, when you're not offended, when you want it to be true, then you can truly understand it. So that's the first implication of that, okay? You can't be embarrassed or offended by Jesus and his message. Secondly, I think it's really interesting how the blessed, the blessing, is imparted for what you don't do. It's not for what you do, it's for what you don't do. I think sometimes when people are doubting, they think, I don't have a faith like that person. Or you might feel in the midst of a soul-crushing trial that you are absolutely failing it, right? I don't think anyone goes through like a true heartbreaking trial, emerges on the other side and says, nailed it, somebody contact a publisher, I'm going to share my story. Right? Everybody feels like they, they fail, and I think what that does is it's almost like we have to nail the trial to prove that we have faith. But he just says, just don't be offended by me. Like, you look at the story of Job. You remember Job? Job was the subject of a debate. God commends Job to Satan and says, this guy's all right. He's a righteous man. And Satan says, well, the only reason why he serves you is because you give him everything. He says, specifically, if you take all these things away, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, this is Job 1.11, he will curse you to your face. That's the bet. Will Job curse God to his face? And when all those bad things happened, to remember the, the advice of his wife? Job 2.9, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's the subject. That's, that's, the, that's the test. So Job complains. He laments. He questions, and yet he's still commended at the end. Do you know why he's commended? Because he never cursed God. I always tell people that. You realize, if you want to pass this trial, all you have to do is not curse God. And you're good. Really? Yeah. Because you know what? We're not saved by nailing every trial. We're saved by grace through faith. Are you saved by the strength of your faith? No. You're saved by the object of your faith. Weak or strong, as long as that faith holds... As long as you're not offended by Jesus, right? You're passing. The greatest man who ever lived 
is still commended as the greatest man who ever lived as he goes through the season of doubt. I look at the book of Jude, and in that book, the half-brother of the Lord fortifies a church that's just under constant spiritual assault. People are leaving the church, and not just leaving the church for another evangelical church. They're leaving the church to join a cult. And a lot of people are, are, are being, this church is being torn asunder. And this is what the Lord's brother says to the faithful congregation. And have mercy on those who doubt. And have mercy on those who doubt. Now, if God, through Jude, tells Christians to have mercy on those who doubt, what do you think his disposition is to those who doubt? Would he ever command you to do something that he doesn't do himself? See, and that's why you can take your doubts to Jesus. That's why John the Baptist felt the full freedom to call two of his disciples and send them, because he knew that Jesus would answer his question. He didn't have to, but he did. Because that's his disposition, is to show you mercy, even as your faith is shaken. Now, this message may be very relevant to you right now. But there might come a time in the future where you are really rocked to the core. You live long enough, it does happen. And doubt doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. The world will tell you that it is because it wants to liberate you from Christianity. But doubt means that, that you need to take a certain course of action, right? What do you do with your doubt? You take it to Jesus and you accept his answer. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you encouraged by the example of John and the tenderness of Jesus. And Lord, I don't know if anyone here is really suffering. I imagine in a crowd this size, um, there has been some wrestling going on. And I pray that this message would minister to them in a very special way, that they will understand that you want to minister to them in their doubts and that you love them in their doubts. And that the season of suffering and anguish will give way to a deeper, richer spirituality where they feel and experience your, your grace and your comfort. In the meantime, Lord, give them the patience. Help them not to, to waste this opportunity to honor you with their faith. And Lord, should the time come, I pray that all of us will, will hold on to um, just the precious promises of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.